0: In the tradition, in the the Buddhist tradition, the Dharma traditions, there is the concept and the idea of the Bodhisattva. And that's been actually around since the beginning. And about 500, between 500 and 1,000, yeah, my math isn't very good, but a while after the Buddha died, <laughs> 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 it gained... <laughs> or it before. Or it before. <laughs> a while after the Buddha died, it gained quite a central significance and a slightly different meaning. And what it came to mean in the tradition was someone who aspired very highly with two two central aspirations and one was the aspiration of compassion of boundless compassion and serving life serving other beings and the other was and sometimes this is interestingly neglected but the other was to fully understand the emptiness of all things of all phenomena those two together says the compassion and the wisdom uh, together make up that that the aspiration to live that way, to fulfill both of those potentials, uh, make up the Bodhisattva. And actually it was originally meant as someone who vowed to become a Buddha in a future life. But this came about historically, and actually historians are a little bit unclear when exactly it emerged and how it emerged and where it emerged in the tradition... But it was felt among, obviously, certain practitioners that a while after the Buddha's death that there was, A, 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 not quite a full enough understanding of what the Buddha originally said. And so that's where the emptiness piece comes in. And also that somehow the emphasis on compassion had slipped a little bit and a lot of people were practicing just for themselves. So this rebirth of the emphasis on compassion, fullness of understanding on emptiness. So Bodhisattva is really someone who is totally devoted to compassion, who lives their life with compassion at the center, at the core of their priority. Their whole life is kind of revolving around compassion, revolving around the, the wish, the desire to serve others. There's a text by Shantideva, I think, 8th century, uh, quite some years after the Buddhist death. And, in a way, it's the epitome of the sort of expression of this aspiration. There's a few extracts from this I'd like to read. Has anyone read from this, yet on this retreat? No, on, uh, one of us teachers on this retreat. Okay, I just want to... It's expressing this yearning, this wish, this surrender to the centrality of compassion and and the movement of compassion in one's life. I am medicine for the sick and weary. May I be their physician and their nurse until disease appears no more. May I strike down the anguish of thirst and hunger with rains of food and drink. May I be food and drink to them in famine and disaster. May I be an inexhaustible treasure for those in need. May I be their servant to give them all they desire, my body, my pleasure, my merit, now and forever, everywhere. I care nothing for them. I cast them aside to to accomplish the aim of beings. May I be a protector for the unprotected. A guide for wanderers, a boat, a bridge, a causeway for those who desire the other shore. A lamp for those who need a lamp. A bed for those who need a bed. A slave for those who need a slave for all beings. And may may I be a wishing gem, an inexhaustible vase, a magic spell, a great medicine, a wish-fulfilling tree, a cow of plenty for all beings, as the elements of earth and water and fire and air are for the use of all beings who dwell in all of space, in many ways may I be the means of sustenance for the realm of beings in all of space until all have passed into nirvana. And by my merit may the blind see and the deaf hear, the fearful cease to tremble, the afflicted be consoled, and the weary be made content. May the sick be made whole again. Those in bondage freed. May the weak be strong and loving to each other. And as long as the earth and sky shall last. May I remain here to heal the sorrows of the world. I take upon myself the sorrows of the world. and May the world be happy. It's very, very powerful, very beautiful passage. When Shantideva, just in the Bodhisattva Chariot, which where, where he puts that's extracts from that, where he puts these ideas forth and this aspiration forth, the chapter before that it comes, it it bursts. He describes it bursting into his consciousness as a kind of just an explosion of this of this aspiration for compassion, very sudden. But I wonder, you know, alongside with the language being extremely kind of ornate and uh, extreme and colourful I wonder if that's also an exaggeration and if this aspiration towards compassion actually necessarily needs to take birth in a sudden way you know sudden equals dramatic and people like that because it's like ooh but I wonder if this movement towards making compassion central can actually be a a, a gradual movement does it need to be sudden or both? The question I want to go into today is what allows that kind of compassion, first of all to be there, to arise, but second of all to actually stay, to stay there. So a compassion like that, a huge compassion, to have compassion be central in one's life, to have love and compassion be central, it needs The the compassion needs an unshakability to it. Somehow in the compassion there needs to be a real sense of yeah, unshakability, that it will will stand up in the face of whatever suffering and all suffering. So the bigger the compassion, in a way, the bigger the unshakability it needs, the bigger the foundation. So this is really what I want to go into today. And this is where the fourth brahmavihara, equanimity, comes in. And how does that come in to compassion to allow the compassion to be stronger and and more stable? So there are these four brahmaviharas: metta, compassion, and mudita, joy, which Catherine talked about yesterday, and equanimity. And I'm sure Catherine said this, but just say mudita. Oftentimes, gets translated as sympathetic joy. Joy in the joy of others. But really it's something much broader than that. It's, uh, you could say, spiritual joy. Joy that doesn't depend on the ego. It's a joy that doesn't depend on me getting something. You telling me how wonderful I am. Me getting anything. It's not about the ego. It's joy that's coming from an openness uh, being touched in life. And so there's Mudita, and there's this last Brahma-vihara, equanimity, or upeka. Now, actually, when the Buddha talked about equanimity, most of the time he meant equanimity in relation to all things and all conditions. So it wasn't just in relationship to the suffering of beings. So in a way it has two meanings. One is a very broad meaning, just stable, steady, remaining open in the face of whatever happens, whatever conditions there are, whatever conditions arise. And then the almost like smaller meaning, which is actually what I want to go into more today, equanimity in its relationship to compassion, the way that equanimity needs to be there at the base of compassion to make that compassion really, really unshakable. so that in our lives or in our practices we give compassion to beings or we help beings. We work in service or whatever it is. We work to help others. And oftentimes that helps. What we do helps. It's a factor that helps. But sometimes we're wishing compassion, we're meditating, we're actively involved in helping, and it doesn't help. It's just we the person is still suffering or getting worse. And so this is really where the equanimity needs to come in. So, questions. How how does that come into the practice? How do we bring that in in a very deep way to, to the compassion practice, this equanimity? So, and this will be the last time I say this piece, on this retreat at least. This, if you can stand it one more time. This balance, balance in the practice that I talk about. when When we talk about compassion in the meditation, there is the taking in, the empathy, the tuning in to the suffering of another, letting the heart resonate, letting that sorrow resonate in the heart, the receiving of the suffering. And the balancing of that with the healing energy that goes out, the balm, that which soothes, that which helps, and feeling that energy on its way out, the balm, the healing, because it bathes oneself on the way out, and it's actually pleasant, and it's actually happy, even if it's just quietly happy, it's actually nourishing. So this is really, really crucial. As I said, the balance won't be a set point, it will be dynamic, it will be moving back and forth, but we can develop this skill where we're actually aware Aware where the balance is at any point, at any point in time, and say, so, "Am I am I too long in the empathy side, too long with the grief of it? Do I need to sit more in the other side, feeling the nourishment of it?" There will be grief. There there will be, and it's a beautiful thing for the heart to. When the heart opens, and there are tears at the suffering, and the what the huge amount of suffering in the world, or, or or those that we know, and the heart resonates with that, and it's a it's a beautiful, precious treasure of what it is to be human, to, to live in, in the fullness of, of, of our humanity, that we will feel that, and we will shed tears, and we will feel that grief. But unless, in, in a long-term way, unless we get the, take care of this balance, it, the, the compassion won't have strength and sustainability to it. And that's what we're really talking about, Sustainability. What gives compassion just that that it lasts, it can really last. That's really, really important. Now this, so I'm talking very, in terms of very specific nuts and bolts of technique with this. But the the beautiful thing is it translates. Develop the skill on the cushion, in the meditation hall of this balance. And it translates when you're sitting opposite someone, listening to them, you're holding their hand, you're with someone, you can actually take that same skill that came from the meditation practice and translate it into the personal when you're talking, when you're listening, etc and it, it's just a skill but this, this is really, really fundamental and it gives the compassion a sense of buoyancy So as I said, how common it is for people to do the compassion practice and then just feel sunk under it, burdened by compassion, it often doesn't take very long to come on a retreat like this a couple of days and it's like Phew, can we move on to the next one Um, So it gives it a buoyancy, a balance, a steadiness, and this unshakable quality. All of which are factors of equanimity coming in. And then, again, also to repeat something else, I've said a few times, the samadhi. I'm just harping on and on about samadhi. In its most fundamental sense, samadhi as non-distractedness it's just, or less distractedness, put it that way, because again, please remember it's a continuum Samadi. And I can't remember if I said this the other day, but there's such a tendency to think, oh, I have it, I don't have it, and if I don't have it, then I'm a failure, and, and the, the self-judge comes in. It's a continuum. But generally speaking, less distractedness is actually more steadiness in the mind. You can actually see that. It's a simple equation. Less distractedness, more steadiness... And that steadiness begins to absorb into the being in all kinds of ways, all kinds of ways. So not to neglect the the, the power of the samadhi. And it's, it's very common for people to say to me, well, it's better for me to practice where there are more disturbances and my samadhi is actually worse because that's more similar to what I live with outside. And therefore it will have a greater carryover effect when I leave the retreat. Now there's a certain amount of wisdom in that, but don't neglect how much the samadhi can actually come into the being and and affect the cells and 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 the whole consciousness that way. How does it affect the cells? Because samadhi is a very there's big physical sense in samadhi. As you go deeper into samadhi, the body sense is more and more involved and the sense of the body. And there's a sense that the body is being more and more steeped or bathed in something that's very, very nourishing and ultimately very, very still. And that literally becomes the more common way that the body feels in life. That that openness, that lightness, that uh, sense of strength and and steadiness comes into the body and then that... Um, uh, that, that sense is with you more and more of the time you say it heals how, how do they heal differently from compassion? Uh, slightly differently but there's also a relationship there we can come back to it at the end if you want we didn't really go much into samadhi on this retreat but just to say there could be another retreat where we spent a month just on samadhi or three months or whatever it is And as the samadhi deepens, it actually brings with it joy. It goes through a whole range of territory where joy comes, and joy comes very fully into the being. And that joy, the mudita, is actually also a basis for equanimity. When we have joy, when we're familiar and have familiar access with a sense of joy in our life, we have enough, and then we're less shakeable in this life and in relationship to our suffering and the suffering of others so samadhi naturally actually goes on a journey long term I'm talking about naturally goes on a journey through joy and then naturally actually ripens into equanimity when we're doing the compassion practice it's very common and very normal do you want me to close it's very normal to have a sense of the self doing the compassion. Here I am, sitting and walking and kind of flapping as much as I can and trying to generate some compassion, and that's very normal, it's very natural. The self is doing the compassion. And sometimes, sometimes, and I'm sure some of you have tasted this to to some degree or other. Again, as the practice deepens, as the samadhi deepens, there can be a sense that it's less the self doing it. There's just a sense of almost effortlessness, or less effort, less self behind it, and more just compassion present. There seems to be less doing. Now, it can be common, if one gets a taste of that at times, to neglect kind of the doing of the compassion, to think, oh, well, the really proper compassion is when I don't feel like I'm doing it or when there doesn't feel to be much self in it. But the whole range is important, and this is, this is really, really important to, to keep in mind. The whole range of compassion and how compassion feels is important to us. So sometimes it does feel like, here I am flapping and huffing and puffing and trying to get the compassion going. And it's very much the self, this self, giving compassion to that self. Very much about self and other. Absolutely necessary and fine and important. So this, you know, doing, doing is an aspect of compassion. Compassion wants to alleviate suffering. And there's a doing in that. So there is also the other aspects of compassion receiving and holding suffering. Definitely. Definitely. But there's also a doing involved. So, you know, if we are in the presence of a child that's starving, you know, we don't say, I, you know, I'm feeling really receptive, tell me all about it, I'm, I'm all ears. <laughs> Silly, obviously. You uh, we, we do something, you act. But this is delicate. sometimes when we do more or feel we're doing more, actually in the doing the sense of self gets built up, because it becomes the doer, the self becomes the doer, and with it a sense of attachment, attachment to results. So the more doing, not always, but oftentimes, the more doing, the more self, and the more attachment to the results. And with that attachment to the results, the less equanimity in the compassion. You s- do you see that? Mm-hmm. I remember f- uh, five years ago or something being on a retreat here for three months and at some point getting ill, quite, I uh, can't remember when it was, at some point in the retreat, and uh, getting ill with a flare-up of Crohn's disease, which is something I suffer from. From time to time and this is a disease some of you may know it's a disease where they haven't really figured out a cause for it, they don't really understand it and so my particular personality, what happens to me when I get it is one part of my being tries to figure out, figure it out and I start experimenting with diet and this alternative and that and and sort of taking notes and (laughs) and I just, you know, it's just my personality I can't help it Well, I probably could, but um, (laughs) anyway. I think um, what I noticed was at that time was there were two modes. One, I was on retreat, which is a very sort of nothing to do, nowhere to go mode. And I could just sit with the discomfort of it and and the pain of it and and the the fear and and, and etc. And just hold all that in compassion and non-doing, just being with that, just letting that be held. And that was one mode, which was very actually beautiful way of, of being with something very difficult. And then another mode was very much about doing, and trying to take care of myself, and trying to figure out what the best thing, what, the, what, what, what would bring healing. Both are necessary, both are necessary. And just to watch, sometimes what I noticed was, the more that I got into the figuring out mode, out of wanting to heal, that oftentimes it felt the more removed I was from the kind of holding of the compassion and the and the, the sense of that uh, the sweetness of compassion in a way, both are necessary though it 's really important to acknowledge that with compassion it really is a range and and all of that is compassion, even when it looks like one 's just um, trying to, you know, tearing one's hair out, trying to figure something out, or trying to help someone. It's still the expression of compassion. Very much so. Sometimes, as as has been mentioned, the compassion practice can, can seem, at times, for some people, can seem as if it opens out or drops into a whole other sense. There really is a spectrum here. And... It's almost like a space of compassion opens up, a space. And in that space, suffering is held. That whatever suffering arises is held in that space. It's a space of compassion. And it could feel like it's a space within us, or it could feel actually like it's a vast space. And we've touched on this before in this retreat. A space that's actually the size of the universe. It's infinite. So this is a very real a perception that can arise for different people at, at different times, spaciousness is also a quality of an aspect of equanimity, very much so so when there's suffering, a spaciousness around that suffering is is a, a color a face of equanimity, and so in this practice, the more that we can actually encourage and dwell in. In that spaciousness where whatever suffering there is, whatever suffering that could possibly arise in the universe, it it actually is effortlessly held. And we can begin to get glimpses of that experience and then actually nurture it. We can learn to nurture that experience as a very real perception that begins... In a, in a, again, in a very real way, to change our whole relationship with suffering in, in, in the world and in ourselves and in, in this life. That it moves more and more from little old me who has to hold this suffering to a kind of, it's just held and one knows it's held and one feels it's held. And in that vastness of holding, there is equanimity with the compassion, mixed in with the compassion. And sometimes, for some people, this can be a very, well, almost always, is a very beautiful sense, even a mystical or religious sense, and that's very much part of it. The perceptions can change, they can open out, and something very beautiful is born there, which we can then not snatch at and not try to keep, but encourage, nurture, nourish that opening of the perception. And it's a gradual thing, but it's, it's definitely possible. A lot of transformation comes from that. Someone wrote me a little note with a poem that she'd found from Rilke. It's very lovely. It speaks to this sense of the holding being something almost religious, or simply religious. As from the distance, leaves are falling. Fall as if the far-off gardens fade into the sky. They fall with gestures of relinquishing. And through the night, there falls the pressing earth, down past the stars in lonesomeness. We are all falling. There, this hand falls too, occurring to us all. Just look around you. Still, there is one who holds us tenderly, as in his hands we fall, fall endlessly. It's a very beautiful speaking about this holding, which for some people takes a very personal a very personal flavor. And in, in Tibetan traditions and other, other of the Buddhist traditions, very much the relationship with the Bodhisattva, the relationship with the guru or the root guru as someone one prays to, as someone who's actually holding in the vastness of their consciousness one's own suffering. And you get the same thing in mystical Christianity, that the cosmic Christ or the energy of Christ is actually holding the suffering in the universe. Now it could be personal, but it could also be impersonal. It doesn't don't need to necessarily introduce any figure into it. And people are different, and they have different tendencies. This, this is a tendency that can open and brings a lot of equanimity. One possibility. When we speak, when we use the language of Bodhisattva, and, and especially when we hear Shantideva and, and, and this kind of thing, it's an incredibly high aspiration. It's, I mean, it's, it's almost like mind-blowingly high. Um, almost unreal when we hear it. It's almost, I mean, that's the, the flavor that comes off is a kind of mind-boggling kind of un, unreality to it. And yet and yet there are people who, who who take it on it comes to become something real for them it translates in a way that, that comes some, becomes something real but whether we're moved by that or repelled by that that's actually not what I want so much dwell on, as so much so much I want to go into, what, what allows our compassion, wherever we are in that, to become unshakable, or more and more unshakable. So we can have a sense of Bodhisattva being a very high aspiration. We also need to respect, where are we? Where am I in all this? How is it for me right now, when I'm in a situation with someone that's suffering, someone I know or don't know, or or, or I care about, Where am I, really, in in my humanity? And sometimes, you know, this is really something I think to, to give very careful attention to in our life. Sometimes we neglect ourselves and our needs. Sometimes we're too cautious, perhaps. And perhaps there is a place for stretching ourselves, stretching our limits, just saying, to hell with Myself and my self concern, and just a kind of abandon. Maybe that has its place, or rather, it definitely has its place, but it needs to be approached with with wisdom. And stretching the limits of one's stamina and one's endurance in in serving and in giving. There is there is the place for that, and I'm not necessarily talking about something, you know, like literally giving up one's life. I'm just talking about little ways. Just letting go of the self-concern. Sometimes, and in, in, you must have uh, come across this, you're doing the metta or the compassion practice, and something's not feeling quite right for you, either the body's niggling or something's, something's not right, it can be very skillful to just drop in, it doesn't matter how I feel right now, it doesn't matter, I'm just giving the compassion to you. It's just You can just play with this kind of abandonment of self-concern, not all the time, but just sometimes. But this is a very delicate area, and needs a lot of careful attention. Sometimes we need to ask, what are my needs? What are my needs in this situation? What are my desires too? So I'm sure many of you have had a situation or have situations where we are in a relationship or a friendship or a situation with someone where they are suffering the other is suffering and perhaps it's going on for quite a while it's chronic and we are in a caretaking role uh, to in, in some form or another so maybe it's just a friendship and sometimes even in a friendship or relationship with a person who is bringing suffering on themselves and you can see that because of the choices they're making for whatever it is alcohol drugs the way they're living you can just see and yet you care about this person and you want to uh, live with compassion there. And one can very me, very naturally feel in that situation here, in the ongoingness of this relationship, my needs are not being met. And so this is, uh, I think, very common when one finds oneself in this situation with, with a friend or any kind of relationship that this is going on in. And especially difficult when the person seems to be bringing it on for themselves, if you've ever been close with an addict or something like that. It's a very very difficult relationship to keep and keep healthy. And the question, am I taking care of my needs in this situation? Am I taking care of my needs? Not not easy, because there will be in that if there's friendship and if there's a history of friendship and relationship. There will be loneliness that comes in. Sometimes it can feel like the person is just not available. They're either, they are literally don't have the energy to be there, or they're just checked out. And there can be loneliness coming. We don't feel met. We don't feel seen. We don't feel like there's a flow of love and friendship there. We don't feel loved. So this is all... Really important stuff to, to be aware of. What are my needs? What's going on here? And what's it important to take care of? And it can also be complicated by other factors. Sometimes we're with someone who's suffering, and we actually, if we're honest, we look inside, we notice, we may notice, we want to be needed. We want to be needed, and so in a way, this is a very weird one. Something in us actually has an investment in keeping the other suffering, because—and this is it's a horrible word—but in psych, some psychotherapies they call codependency. There's actually a mutual investment in in someone being someone suffering, and the other person kind of keeping, wanting to keep them down. We have to ask: Is there? Do I want to feel needed? Do I need to feel needed? What's going on there? If I do do i want to be recognized for my efforts for the efforts of service and care so th- these are not easy questions and in a way some of that is just human when we when we give service when we give when we're compassionate there is a part of us a very natural human part that wants to be wants our efforts to be recognized so the question is or a question is is it possible to get what we need in a healthy way, in a healthy way. That it's not coming into the relationship in an under, undercurrent, undercover way. That we're actually conscious and, and, and getting what we need in a healthy way. Not easy, not easy territory at all. And sometimes when there is compassion and love, and uh, a... Uh, 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 a situation of service to someone and we feel frustrated and we feel it's difficult and we feel aversion is creeping in and we feel judgment is creeping in, especially if they are uh, not handling it well or causing it for themselves making wrong choices again compassion matter to oneself not to neglect that can be so quick to rush in uh, uh, to give to to the other Oftentimes, though, we don't have that same kind of self-interest. It's not a friend or, or a relative or, or, or a partner or whatever that we're, we're uh, working with. There isn't that self-interest. But still the question, what is it that allows, that helps the compassion to stay strong, to stay steady, to stay tender? So when I say strength, I really mean to stay open. That the heart stays open, stays soft and tender. What allows that? So often in the world, we do see. It's clear. We look at another, and it's, and we can see. We look at others, and we see they are. You could say, in one way of putting it, is they're causing suffering for themselves or others, and out of ignorance, they're just not seeing the consequences of their actions or their way of being and it's clear and we look and we see that and this is partly why uh, equanimity is, is, is I want to speak about it, it's so important that equanimity needs to come in remember we talked about near enemies and near enemies of loving kindness and near enemies of compassion, the near enemy of equanimity, something that looks like it, but on closer inspection is really not it, the near enemy of of equanimity is indifference, it's just the heart's actually shut down, cold, disinterested, disconnected, whereas equanimity is actually open, it's still tender, it's still soft, it's interested, it's present. So oftentimes indifference can even be dressed up in spiritual language. But it's, uh, it's, it's not equanimity. So, it, it, spiritual language in different traditions, you know, we have the notion of karma. And how often, you, you know, people, the, the temptation is to say, suffering. It, It's the suffering, it's just their karma. It's their karma, and they need to go through it. Or, you know, that's an Eastern concept, or in the West, uh, it's, you know, God's punishing them, or something. So, rather to ask, you know, these are taking spiritual concepts and using them in immature understandings. Rather to ask, what is my responsibility to suffering with suffering. This is a huge question. What's my responsibility? What's my response ability? My ability to respond? My What is my response? So compassion, and particularly compassion with equanimity in it, has two factors which I want to say a bit about and kind of talk around for a little bit. Compassion needs to have wisdom in it and it needs to have faith in it. I want to talk around this for a little bit. It needs to have wisdom and faith. And this is at all kinds of different levels. So at a very sort of, I don't know, is it mundane level, perhaps, one aspect of wisdom is just realizing the limits of our actions. So it's very easy to see this in the context uh, of of a political context. The limits, even in a democracy, you know the tendency to think, what difference does it make if I vote or not? Or, or certainly to see it very clearly with globalization, just to, to real realize the actual limits of one's actions, and just to see we are limited, or even even in other contexts, you have to see that. Here, one may be giving service or acting compassionately or trying to alleviate the suffering, and it's only one strand in a web of conditions. So what we do, what we choose to do, how we act and speak, is just one strand in a web of conditions, in a web of interdependence. So, for example, I mean, it's interesting giving talks, uh, for many reasons, but... um, One gives a talk and one wants to help, one wants to offer something to help. And, but it's important, you know, for me to reflect and and I think for everyone everyone who's doing this kind of thing or any kind of act to reflect. One gives a talk, there's so much going on, right now, there's so much going on making up this talk. It may seem to me, or to you, that I'm giving the talk. Of course, at one level, I am. But actually, and if anyone has ever been involved in any kind of performing art, what you become aware of is the talk is actually a collaboration. I'm actually doing most of the talking, but, um, although this group's interesting because it's. <laughs> but anyway, um, it's actually a collaboration. So I still have this piece of paper and the notes and what, what I want to get through in the course of the talk. But but there there is something. in in the way everyone is present or not present, uh, awakeful or not wakeful, interested or not, everything, you know, if you ate too much for lunch, that's going to affect this talk. Thank you very much. (laughs) Um, it's, It's a totally collaborative effort. So what comes out of the mouth, the whole energy, the whole feel of it, is actually a dependent, against dependent arising. It's a web of conditions. If I, in wanting to serve, in wanting to give something, am too much seeing it from the self, there's just one strand there. It's just one strand. And then the words come out, and, you know, some of them are heard, let's be honest, some of them are heard, and some not. And its effects also... A whole you know, where is it landing? It's landing in a lot of different mind states. It's landing in a lot of different practice histories, it's landing in a lot of different life situations. And one will leave this talk, this retreat, and go out and meet a whole set of other conditions. So a talk or a Dharma teaching or whatever it is, an insight is is actually just a seed. And then it needs to meet a lot of other conditions. Now if I in Willing compassion in in giving, see myself as too much of a of an instrument, or too significant of an instrument. That's where my compassion is going to get too wobbly. It's not going to have that unshakable unshakability to it. I have to see the web here, in in this moment, and certainly in the future. So you know, we talked about emptiness the other night. Very you know, hard to understand subject, very difficult subject to understand just intellectually and then to really absorb that understanding. So for me, it's much more helpful to see something like that, talk like, it's just a seed, it's just a seed, and then perhaps, perhaps it will meet other seeds and there will be a growing. But if I think, right, by, you know, starting to talk at 7.30, by 8.30, everyone in this room needs to, it's, it's too much. So beings that we are helping, we need to remember, after this interaction, after this giving of the compassion, they go on and they meet, they will meet other conditions and other influences. I'm not the sole provider of conditions and and compassion. There's a, very, there's a few very interesting passages from the suttas, from the Buddha. I'm not quite sure where to put them in, but I'll put them in here in, in terms of conditions. He's talking about karma, and he's talking about the ripening of karma from the past. So this could be we've done something that we regret, and then we feel the pain of that regret, that remorse or guilt. Or it could be that something bad has happened to us, and we, we have that memory. Something from the past is having its effect in the present, karma. He says something very interesting in a few different passages. When the mind, when the heart is small, restricted, that karma ripens, the memory of what we did, or what what, what happened to us, whatever, ripens in that context of the unrestricted, the constricted heart. In the the unrestricted heart, the immeasurable heart, so one that is either immeasurable through loving kindness and compassion or joy or equanimity, one of the Brahmaharas, immeasurable that way, the unrestricted heart or unrestricted through samadhi or through insight. In the unrestricted heart, when that karma ripens, when it comes up, when the memory comes up, or well, that the, the effects from the past come up, memory or otherwise, it's in a very different context. And the Buddha said it will barely be noticed. The pain from the past, the karma from the past, will barely be noticed when the heart is really, uh, really open like that. So this is a very powerful, very striking and powerful teaching. Is, is that a continuum then, absolutely? The more yes, the heart, absolutely, the, absolutely. The smaller the space in the mind, the bigger absolutely. the karma will be the wider the very much, yeah. so it's a real, all all this that I'm talking about is a continuum. Yeah, very important. So the smaller the heart uh, at any time, the the karma comes up, extremely massive effect. And the Buddha talks analogy, he gives a few analogies. One of them is a salt crystal in a in a cup of water. How does the water taste after that? pretty salty. <laughs> salt crystal in a in a huge lake. Barely noticeable. And the Buddha says, it will come up, but barely noticeable. Barely making an impression In when the heart is really... So, even when beings are suffering, there's the condition that they meet of what the heart is at any time in the future. Another analogy he gives is, uh, it just says something about the, the sort of judicial system at his at his time but also at this time in different countries that if you're a poor man you can be thrown in jail for a long, long time and no one, no one cares and you just get stuck in jail but if you're a wealthy man it doesn't happen you don't get stuck in jail for a long time you don't get thrown in jail not a very nice analogy but um, the riches of the, again, this um, what we're nurturing instru- inside, and the openness of the heart, the cultivation of this as a real wealth, real wealth, real wealth. So compassion has, as I said, wisdom and faith in it. Compassion has faith in it, and this. I want to go into this a little bit. What, what this might mean. This faith gives equanimity to the compassion. Does any, has anyone heard of Maximilian Kolbe? Yeah? A few people. Well, I, remember, uh, I just remembered his story the other day because I remember telling you about my trip to Auschwitz. And when I was there, I came across the story of Maximilian Kolbe. I remember it. He was a Polish man who became a Franciscan priest and monk. Franciscan are a, Franc- Franciscan's a uh, denomination of a Catholic monk and priest, I think in his early 20s, and lived in Poland and sometime in Asia. And then the Nazis uh, overtook Poland, and he was thrown in jail immediately just as a suspect because of being a monk and a Catholic, and then released... And he went back to his friary and hid, uh, in some way or another, hid 3,000 Polish refugees there, 2,000 of whom were Jewish. And he hid them there, uh, obviously under great uh, danger to himself, great threat to himself. After a while, it was found out, and he and some of his uh, colleagues were sent to Auschwitz. In the, in the early part of the camp's uh, existence. Now after he had been there a few months, just a couple of months, one day in his block, in his cell block, a prisoner went missing. And so the assumption on behalf of the, the, the Nazi guards was that this prisoner had escaped. It actually turned out that he had drowned in a latrine, either by suicide or accident. But anyway, the assumption was that he was he had escaped. And the punishment, if a person escaped from a cell block, was that ten men were chosen at random and executed from that cell block. And so ten were chosen from his block. And one of them, one of these ten, on being chosen, uh, he was actually a Polish resistance fighter who was in Auschwitz. There was a lot of political prisoners in Auschwitz at the time. And one of them immediately broke down, he was picked as one of the ten, he immediately broke down, how are my wife and children going to get on without me? I, you know, I've got young children, I've got wife, and he immediately broke down, didn't make any impact. But then Father Colbert, Maximilian Colbert, stepped forward, and he said, I will take the place of this man. And mi- miraculously the commandant the Nazi commandant actually agreed to let this happen and so the punishment this isn't very nice to hear, but the punishment was that they were thrown into a little room, a little I've actually seen it it's a tiny room, I thought it was so tiny I thought they must have died from asphyxiation, but actually they were left there to starve, and so just thrown into this little room at the bottom of the stairs and left there to starve and usually people would last a few days before you know the basic body starts to decompose. After two weeks, the camp authorities needed uh, needed to put more victims in the room, basically. So they went down to clear it out and found four of them still alive. Three of them were not conscious, but still alive. And there was the last one still alive, which was actually Father Kolba And they... Uh, killed well, the camp executioner killed them with with lethal injection. That's how they killed him, and he was completely conscious at the time of his death. So, not a very nice story to hear, but one wonders, hearing stuff, what's going on? What went was going on for him, and th- you know that's just one story. You want to pick out this countless stories in the history of humanity where that kind of level of 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 um, self-renunciation, self-abandonment is going on in the service of of others. What's going on? There's another lovely... Do you know who Damien the Leper is? Have you heard that? He was... um, Just briefly, he was also uh, actually a Catholic monk in the Dominican order and at one time one of the Hawaiian islands was a leper colony. So they would just use it to keep lepers. No one else lived there but lepers because of the fear of contagion. And he... Volunteered to be a minister to the lepers, to go and live out the rest of his life on this island with nothing but thousands and thousands of lepers. And he volunteered to do that. And he was a doctor and he ministered to them and he also was their uh, religious minister. And eventually, I think it took 12 years, but he eventually contracted leprosy and, and eventually died. And I think, what's going on? And the compassion has faith in him, just picking those, I mean, random. What's going on in a being's consciousness that allows something like that? So we talk about faith, and faith, I mean could talk a long time about faith. Faith is a very interesting quality, and again, it, there's a real spectrum to faith. So the beginnings of faith, and particularly if we talk about we haven't talked much on this retreat about a sort of devotional faith and too much about relationship with Kuan Yin and that kind of thing. Immature faith, or the beginnings of faith, was the faith that it will turn out how I want. It will, Or we hear, it'll be alright, but what that really translates as, it will turn out how I want. And that's the beginnings of faith, but it's actually an immature faith. A path of faith and devotion, and this is a real path for, for people who tread it, it actually deepens it deepens and it matures and there's a maturing of what devotion means and what faith means and so it moves it leaves behind what i can get what can i get what i am asking you for What i am asking god or bodhisattva or christ or whatever it is what i'm asking for it moves away from that and someone said not on this retreat but a little just a week or so ago uh, i was meeting with them, and she said to me Feels like the gods have abandoned me. And we explored it, and what she really meant was, I'm not getting what I want. And it transforms and it deepens, and you know the kind of the beautiful words of of Jesus in in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows, he knows what's coming. He says, Thy will be done, Thy will, not mine, be done. So there's, a, there's a again, this turning upside down of values, turning inside out thy will not mine be done And so powerful and so beautiful there's this movement into, as much as there's a movement of a path of wisdom into depth there's, there's a movement of path of devotion into depth and it, r- people write about this Saint John of the Cross is perhaps one of the most famous ones moving away from the k- kind of sense of consolation one gets from God or Bodhisattva or whatever it is away from that to thy will and actually into the the dark night of the soul, where one feels one isn't getting anything, and there's something in that darkness, in that not getting. So it deepens. But I think when 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 I reflect on sort of what's going what must have been going, we don't know what was going on with Father Colber. What must have been going? Something happens in the deepening of faith and devotion. That the, and this is what's perhaps important. The view of suffering changes. The view that we have of suffering changes. And in this case, it was through faith. So you can be, I feel pretty sure, that Father Colbert was seeing that situation differently. There was something in the depth of his faith and devotion and, and sense of, of, in this case, sense of God, or whatever you want to call it, something that allowed him to see that situation differently so that suffering, the suffering, is not the whole of reality. This is very interesting, or that suffering is not as real as it seems, or that the suffering, again, is held in something else. It's held in something else. All of these are different views of suffering. They're different ways that the suffering is seen and related to. If we talk more in, in line with sort of typical Buddhist practice, more Theravada, and that, that's sort of more more what we're familiar with, and we say, What is Dharma faith? What does Dharma faith mean? What does it mean for us to have faith and bring that faith into compassion? We again this is something we could talk so much about. There are perhaps two qualities that are really crucial. Two aspects. One is the first aspect I, I think of faith is that Beautiful, it's also an insight, beautiful qualities, cultivating beautiful qualities, cultivating this openness of heart and everything that brings that, and generosity and equanimity and samadhi and metta and love, all those qualities. The cultivation of beautiful qualities brings well-being and happiness and security, security. That's what brings, I think I said this in another talk, that's what brings security in life. And there's faith, and there's a wisdom in, in seeing that, and there's a faith in it. Faith in that, and also faith that it's possible for me. It's possible for me to cultivate, wherever I am now, whatever lack of beautiful qualities I seem to have when I look inside, however impoverished I feel, it's possible for me, it's possible for this being, this heart, this mind, to cultivate beautiful qualities and, and grow, let them grow. The first aspect of faith. second aspect of faith, in, in a more Dharma sense, strictly more conventional Dharma sense, is that freedom from suffering is possible. Freedom from suffering is possible. This is at the root of any kind of Dharma, understand. But it's interesting because different Dharma scenes are different. And this, this is a particular one, sort of the typical guy house scene, but... One, because if freedom from suffering is possible, generally, in other words, it is possible, awakening is possible, freedom from suffering is possible, in a, in a very general, complete sense. And it's interesting how many practitioners, and even long-term practitioners, believe that. And I know people who have been practicing decades and actually don't believe in the possibility of awakening or enlightenment. I'm not going to get into that now. What's more important, I think, from is also... In the moment, freedom from suffering is possible or it's possible to, at least in this instance, whatever it is, whatever is going on, less suffering is possible. A degree of freedom of suffering is possible. That's a real faith that's a wisdom as well and that's active. It does something. It means here I am in a situation of suffering and I know, I have faith that it's possible for me to suffer less or another to suffer less. And what that faith, kind of with wisdom in it, what it does is it brings an aliveness into the relationship with the suffering. It brings an aliveness, an openness, an inquiry, a responsiveness. This is really, really, it's such a, in a way it's such a small shift, but it's so significant. It's what transforms a moment of suffering into a moment of potential and practice. Otherwise, how are we viewing suffering? If, if none of this faith and wisdom is there, how are we actually viewing suffering, our own and others? I think nowadays that we live in a non-religious culture, a very secular culture, how easy it is, without us even realizing it, to view suffering as meaningless, and, to, and to, in, in that to be actually overwhelmed with suffering. Again, how are we seeing it? What's giving the view and the context of the suffering that we see? Very easy in the modern culture to to view suffering as meaningless, pointless. Nothing can come from it. So, So compassion has wisdom in it. And fundamentally what that means is that we begin more and more, or more and more deeply, to understand the causes and conditions that give rise to suffering. That's what, that's what wisdom or, or insight or panya means. We're, we're understanding the causes and conditions that lead to suffering. And out of that very understanding is born compassion, that very understanding will bring with it compassion so one could never go anywhere near loving kindness practice or compassion practice, and just the deepening of the insight will bring compassion naturally, effortlessly, organically because we're going into the causes and conditions, and understanding that but Rob, well, when you say it's meaningless do you mean that, that what is the meaning? the meaning is the meaning of suffering is to it. Um, yeah, perhaps that's not the best word. Rather that it's it's a, it's not just a random thing that one has to just either doesn't have a meaning or one just has to put up with and it's it one doesn't understand and it's just there. So in the dharma, in the strictly dharma sense of faith, it's like I can understand something here that that transforms it. So it's a, it just saying it it becomes a, a field of potential and a moment of potential, right? And other. Other ways would be actually putting a different meaning on it, which, for instance, someone like Father Colburn might have. It uh, doesn't matter, it's talking about changing views, but in a strict Dharma sense, it would be what's the potential here? And we begin to see, when we understand more and more the, the, the causes and the conditions, we begin to see the commonality that I am doing it, you are doing it, everyone is doing this. What's at the root of suffering? We are feeding suffering with the causes and conditions and through not understanding. And it's that seeing of the commonality that brings a lot of compassion. Traditionally, with equanimity towards beings, there are phrases. There are phrases that we reflect on, like the meta-phrases, and I'm going to read them. So this is... Tr- Traditionally, equanimity practice is introduced when one's been doing a lot of compassion practice and the heart is very open to suffering. And then one, to balance that, one drops in these these reflections of equanimity. The phrase is, all beings are the owners of their own actions. Their happiness and their unhappiness depends on their actions, not on my wishes for them. So this is in the context of one wishing well-being for others through the compassion practice, and then one realizes there's a limit to that. There's another one. All beings... I'll put these up if... bit if, uh, mm-hmm. It's quite a long one. All beings are the owners of their actions and inherit the results of their actions. Their future is born from such actions, companion to such actions, and the results of their actions will be their home. All actions with intention, be they skillful or harmful, of such acts they will be the heirs. So in the context of a heart that's very open to suffering, a very w- touching the suffering directly, it's very sobering to reflect on that. The limits and what it is that one's actually not understanding in terms of causes and conditions that leads to suffering. As I say, there's no blame here. It's seeing a commonality. It's really not about blame but there is this sense of that freedom is possible at least to some extent at least to some extent and and so we're seeing the suffering differently and so as beings as 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 beings interested in compassion interested in the openness of the heart and living in the world we find ourselves touched by, confronted by, the enormity of suffering in, in, in the world. It's just there. And we see that, and we're hopefully we're open to that, and we want to be open to that. And we recognize the limits of what I can do, the limits of my actions, as I talked about earlier. And we also, oftentimes, we look at the world and the situation, the world globally, politically, environmentally, and how, how little change often seems to be happening. And sometimes there's huge, massive changes that humanity has, has brought about. But oftentimes we look and there's very little change that seems to be happening. And yet, we might have that awareness, not much is happening here, there's overwhelming amount of suffering, yet lo- living with love and compassion is the best way to live. It's the best way to live. We so say, what's the point? It doesn't make any difference. It's not going to make any difference. It's the best way to live. Even when we're very conscious of the limits and the seeming pointlessness of it out there. So remember, remember, it's changed very suddenly, very quickly, this thing about climate change. you know, There was a relative amount of fuss, certain administrations, etc., Bush and... Um, oh, the science is still uncertain, it's not clear, and so we'll just procrastinate a bit more about what we do about climate change. And then very suddenly, it's really an issue. But I I felt, even when the science was uncertain, it's like, well, even if we don't know, or even now, if it's too late, what's the best way to live? What's the best way to live? To choose the... Acts that are actually difficult, that go out of our way, that maybe involve some renunciation. What's getting fed in that? So maybe it makes a difference, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's wrong science, maybe it doesn't. What's getting fed if I just go with it? maybe it doesn't matter? I'll just carry on as usual. Maybe just this individual is not going to make a difference, but what's getting fed in in this heart, and in the heart of others, when I choose to renounce or or whatever it is or go without or, or live differently because it might make a difference what's getting fed maybe that's maybe that's more important or as important a question as whether the civilization survives as we know it what's getting fed not doing very well with time but it's almost almost there Sometimes, with this compassionate equanimity, we can feel as if we're walking a tightrope and somehow we have to find this middle point. But actually, I think it's rather that a softening comes into the whole thing a softening of the um, way one is seeing suffering and suffering that can't get resolved. Like the whole view of it becomes softer and, again, more spacious what is it that allows that softening more than anything else? It's it's the understanding of emptiness. It's the opening to emptiness. It, it softens our view. And I would say the more one goes into emptiness and the more one contemplates emptiness and understands it the more devotion comes into the being. And I mean that in a very broad sense. We're actually more and more then devoted to suffering. We can devote ourselves to that in a way that's not attached. So emptiness is not something that's dry or cold. It's certainly not nihilistic. It doesn't mean nothing exists and, and it's just, meh, nothing matters. That, if it was nihilism, it would lead to indifference. It would lead... contemplation of emptiness is very gradual I've never met anyone who it's sudden for, no matter what you might read or hear about, it's very very gradual, very very gradual we, it's a very difficult thing to understand and we contemplate it bit by bit and slowly slowly we start to it comes together for us and it starts to deepen there are many levels of the depth of what it means and that, that that's a slow journey and one has to respect that it's very gradual, we need to see it over and over so on this retreat we we're just touching on it in a, in a you know one particular way in the last week, but a few little ways. There's many ways of seeing emptiness, but the point of a practice like what we've introduced this week is that one sees it over and over. One does this over and over until until more and more the coin drops. It's not a sudden. Oh, I've got it now. I understand now. That's it. The habit of delusion of not seeing emptiness of Seeing independently existing things and selves. Extremely deep. Extremely deep. So part of it is intellectual understanding, but that also needs to come down into the heart at some point. It's both. And just to remember that emptiness is one tool. It's a tool we pick up for freedom from suffering, for the release from suffering. So compassion is another. They're both tools, and there's times when they come together in one in one kind of flow. I remember being I lived in Boston, and I was there when the September 11th attacks happened, and was actually it was the night, well the night after it happened. There was a big gathering in the meditation center, and discussion, and a teacher was there, and this and that. And s- at some point it came up this thing about emptiness and someone sort of said, well, it's all empty and, and really nothing happened. <laughs> <laughs> but totally the inappropriate tool at the time, because for the person who said that and for actually at that time, everyone in the room, everyone in the room, it, they couldn't pick up that nothing happened in a way that compassion came out of it. Now, Ultimately speaking, you could say, nothing happened that day. Nothing happened, really. But unless we can pick that up and really see it that way, unless our understanding of emptiness is so evolved that that really means something for us in a way that it actually liberates compassion, then you can put down the emptiness as a tool, forget about it, it's just words, it's just cleverness, and you pick up the tool of compassion and you relate in terms of being suffering and my response to their suffering. So it's it's one tool, and one has to see when's it appropriate and when not. Is, is compassion and love not empty? The compassion and love are empty too. Yes, I'm just concerned about time. <laughs> <laughs> <So I just laughs> I'm almost done. Um, one actually eventually does see with this emptiness business. Suffering too is empty. Doesn't exist inherently and independently. And as as Jeanette saying compassion is empty, love is empty, it's all empty and somehow the very seeing of the emptiness of that liberates more compassion it liberates more compassion in some completely paradoxical mystery, beautiful mystery of it way how is it that a bodhisattva can make such a huge aspiration and for such huge amounts of time because they, in a way they're holding the compassion with the emptiness of it all it's all empty. I'm empty. The person, I as the giver of compassion, the suffering is empty. The being suffering empty. It's all empty. At one level nothing happened, at another level I'm right there. That's what allows a bodhisattva to be a bodhisattva, is that the emptiness and the compassion are together. Without that, forget about it. I mean, it's just it's a monstrous, thought. Um I think I think I'm actually going to stop there. <laughs> I was going to say a little more about equanimity in terms of all conditions, but I'll, I'll stop there. So we have a little time if there are Should we sit just for a minute before? Sorry, just just to have a little gathering. Keep it on. Thanks.